Amen. Amen. You may be seated today. We had several baptisms last service and one today, and this just reminds us of what we are about and why we gather, why we share this message of grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ for new life, for the resurrection life to be experienced through those who are not yet part of the family of God. So we encourage you, if baptism is your next step, would you take that next step of faith in your journey as the Lord leads you? We want to welcome you today, both here in person at Carrollton and all of you joining us online, wherever you are from. We're so thankful to have a few moments of sharing together this morning. Our culture, we love hearing stories of people who have gone from rags to riches. And you've probably heard of stories from celebrities or other accomplished men and women of having gone from rags to riches. It's those stories that make headlines, and they, in a sense, inspire us if we desire for something more in life. But what about stories of people who have gone from riches to rags? We don't talk about those very often, do we? Those are not considered successes. Those are failures, maybe even lessons learned. When a person who had everything loses it all, they're deemed as insignificant, even as a failure, as worth nothing. Riches to rags. Well, today, in this week of our series called Pursued, we're looking at how God pursued a man who went from riches to rags. He had everything, and now he has nothing. This story is going to speak to all of us, and especially to you, If God is calling you to something, if he's placing something significant on your heart, a calling to some ministry, to some great thing he's inviting you into. But as you look down your memory lane, you see the failures of the past, you see the brokenness of your story, and they may convince you that you are disqualified. You are unable, unequipped to do what God's calling you to do. You may feel like I can never step into what God is inviting me to. Well, this story is written for you. The story today is of a person who lived about 3,300 years ago. He grew up in the most powerful family as a son in that family. He was educated by the best schools, groomed by the most elite of people. He was apprenticed to be the next pharaoh, the next ruler of Egypt. You already know that this is now a story of Moses, the narrative of the life of Moses. Moses had everything you could ever imagine and beyond. He had the most powerful empire in his hands. But there was a moment that Moses realized that he is not who he thought he was. That in fact, he belonged to the very group of people that he had been oppressing. In that moment, he gave himself over to a fit of rage and committed murder that he could not undo. So out of fear for being found out, Moses begins to run as far as he can. And finally, for 40 years of Moses' life, he settles in a land called Midian. Midian. Midian is a desolate edge of the wilderness found in Mount Horeb, the same space that we looked at last week where Elijah encountered God. Here is Moses, found in Midian. When you think about Moses, most often, the image we have of Moses is this right here. Yep, that's right, Charlton Heston, everybody. (laughs) The best Moses to ever play Moses. (laughs) We think of Moses, the subduer of the Red Seas, the receiver of the Ten Commandments, the facilitator of the plagues, the deliverer of the Israelites, this mighty man of faith and valor who 
rescues God's people from 400 years of slavery. But the truth is that for 40 years in Midian, Moses was not this, he was rather this. He was a troubled shepherd in hiding. The prince had become a fugitive. The darling of an empire, the Egyptian empire, had now become a runaway murderer, just trying to survive in obscurity and hidden. We're told that Moses is a shepherd, and the role of a shepherd was actually the most despised profession in all of Egypt. And now the once prince of Egypt is a shepherd. But the only thing worse than being a shepherd is to care for a flock that's not even yours. And in the story we read that Moses spent the 40 years in Midian taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep, Jethro's flock. So 40 years he's taking care of somebody else's business. He has nothing to show for himself. No achievement, no accomplishment, no possession of his own. He is a failed shepherd. This is a story of riches to rags. It seems like he's lost it all. It's sort of like a top graduate of the Harvard Business School coming back home and then spending the next 40 years at an entry-level job running errands for somebody else. It's not the career, it's not the life you imagine, but that's where Moses is for 40 years in Midian. I want to invite you to follow along in the story with me in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3 and 4, as we dive into Moses' story, Exodus 3 opens up with Moses finding himself at the far side of the wilderness, at the edge of the wilderness, and he has come to a place called Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses is on the far side of the wilderness. He's at the far side of the wilderness because he is tending Jethro's sheep, his father-in-law's sheep, but he can't find pasture anywhere. He can't find food to give his flock anywhere. So he goes as his last resort and finds himself all the way on the edge, the far side of the wilderness. And it is there on the edge of a wilderness, on the far side of this desert, that Moses meets the living God. I think sometimes God allows us to go to the far side of the wilderness just so he can meet us. He allows us to get to the edge of our dreams, the edge of our strength. He waits until we are fully ran out. No more strength of our own. And we are at the edge of our last resort. And then he makes himself known. Maybe today you're here or you're watching us online and you're thinking, I feel like I'm there, not just in the wilderness, but the end of the wilderness, at the edge of the wilderness. And I just want to encourage you today, the edge of your wilderness may be the very meeting place of God. That could be the place, the moment where God changes everything. As the narrative unfolds, Moses, at the far side of the wilderness, sees a bush that is burning but not consumed. This is not normal. This is not usual. So he approaches the burning bush. And there, God speaks. God speaks. The Israelites have been for four centuries longing for God to speak, but they had not yet heard from God. God could have found anybody in Egypt, but God shows up to a failed shepherd, a lowly man, broken, stripped of all confidence and ambition. And there, God speaks to Moses. God makes himself known and introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even of Moses' father. 
And then God reveals to Moses why he has come, that he has heard the cry of the Israelites. He's seen the suffering of his people. And he wants to rescue the Israelites from Egypt. He wants to take them to a land that is good and flowing and spacious, flowing with milk and honey. God makes his purpose known. And then God says, not only is this what I want to do, I want to do it through you. I want to do this through you, Moses. I want to use you for this great purpose. Notice the words of God in Exodus 3, verse 9 and 10. So because the Israelites cry, this is God speaking to Moses, because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Let me stop there. God shows up to Moses and says, here's what I want to do, and you're who I want to do it through. Go and be a part of this epic mission. Have you ever longed to be picked for something significant, to be chosen, selected for something amazing? I love watching shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent or The Voice just to see the expression on the faces of contestants for whom the judge picks them. He notices, she notices her gift. They get that buzzer to beat. No one in their right mind would ever buzz a buzzer for me, but I daydream about it all day long. I wish somebody would. But the moment they've been selected, it is, wow, what an incredible moment of joy and affirmation. Someone sees me. Someone has chosen me. It's kind of how I imagine Moses would respond when the God of the universe shows up to Moses in the middle of nowhere and picks him, chooses him, says, I'm going to use you for the greatest mission that the world has yet seen to be the deliverer of the Israelites. You would imagine Moses would leap forward with joy and say, I'm in. Where do I sign up? Send me, Lord. Here am I. But that's not what he does. That's not what he does. Instead... Moses would offer to God five reasons why he cannot be used for this mission. Some people call them excuses, but I think these were legitimate reasons. Reasons why Moses felt so disqualified, so incapable of being used by God. Five reasons that he offers us of why he cannot be used. You and I have been also called to something great. This year, our vision is to pursue our community, that God is sending us with the message of salvation, with the good news of grace and the gospel of Jesus, to be a part of rescuing people, God using us to rescue people from a bondage worse than the Egyptians, but from the bondage of sin and death and grave and eternity away from God. He is sending us. In fact, this is our mission this year because we have been pursued by a loving God. We lovingly pursue those within our reach because God met us at the edge of our own wilderness, at the far side of hope and our dreams. When our dream and reality were so far away, he met us and because he lovingly pursued us, we join God in his pursuit of others. We lovingly pursue those within our reach. But as you think about what that means for you and who God is sending you to, you may also have the kinds of reasons that Moses has. Legitimate reasons that you offer to God and say, well, if it wasn't for these reasons, maybe I could be used by God. 
Maybe I could say yes to your calling, yes to this vision, this dream you've placed in my heart. But I'm offering you these fears, disbeliefs, and even doubts. In fact, Moses' reasons are not very different than ours. We get a window into our own reasons and fears and doubts through the words of Moses and in this conversation with God. Moses offers God five reasons, and in turn, God offers Moses five assurances. It is a back-and-forth conversation at the burning bush. I'm no longer at a Baptist church, so I think it's okay to play cards nowadays. <laughs> but in this moment, it's like a back-and-forth card game between God and Moses. Moses is giving one card after another to why he is disqualified, and in return, God's got his own stack of cards that he uses and responding to Moses. Reasons and assurance, one after another. Let's look at the first reason that Moses gives. He pulls out a stack of cards. And he says, well, my first reason is that I am not good enough. I'm not good enough. This is the question of identity. Notice what Moses says after God invites him into this incredible mission. Moses says in verse 11, but Moses asked God, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh? That I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God, are you serious? Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh. Moses, by now, in this conversation, he is 80 years of age. He is past the average age of those around him in his generation. Moses has spent the last 40 years looking over his shoulders to make sure no one was coming for him. In fact, he made sure that no one knew who he was. He wanted to hide in obscurity. Make sure that no one knew who he was. And soon, after 40 years passed, he himself forgot who he was. God saw a leader. God saw a deliverer. But Moses can only see a failed shepherd, a broken man, a man of insignificance, having nothing to offer. So as God invites him to this incredible journey, Moses says, who am I that I should go? There is no way that someone like me could ask or do what you're asking me to do. There's no way that someone like me could do what you're asking me, God. Usually when God impresses a vision or a calling on our heart, that too is our response, isn't it? Who am I? I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not resourced enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not qualified enough. I'm not experienced enough. We have a plethora of reasons why we don't feel good enough. Moses did too. But in exchange for Moses' number one reason of not being good enough, God puts his first card down. And God responds to Moses' insecurity of identity being not good enough with a divine assurance of his presence. This is his first assurance, his divine presence. God said to Moses, he answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this very mountain. Moses is asking, who am I? And God is saying, I'm with you, Moses. It actually doesn't matter who you are or who you are not. All that matters is that Jesus is with us. God is saying, what supersedes your insecurity of identity is that I'm with you. And if you have the assurance of my presence, you are able to do what I'm calling you to do. Every single moment we don't feel good enough, our assurance is that Christ 
is with us. We have the assurance of his divine presence. I think about the disciples in Matthew 28 when they're given the Great Commission. What a big goal to make disciples of all the nations. Nations they had not even been to, not even know how to get to. Go make disciples of all the nations. That seems bigger than even what Moses is given the task of doing. But how does Jesus end the Great Commission? And lo, behold, I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age. The disciples must have been looking at themselves saying, who am I? Who are we? We can't even get along. Jesus says, I know you have insecurity of identity, but I'm with you. And that's all that really matters. Do you know that even the apostle Paul, the great missionary church planter, the one who wrote most of the New Testament, he also didn't feel good enough. In fact, he said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Some of you need to highlight that word in your Bible. Our adequacy is not from us, not from our experience, not from who we are, but it is directly from God. He has made us competent. You don't have to be competent on your own. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He has made us competent. Who am I? God says, I'm with you. My first official paid church job it was back in 2010 when I was in seminary. I wanted to work and serve at a church, so I applied everywhere I could. I went to one interview where I had applied to be a youth pastor, and I pulled up to the parking lot and realized this is an Ethiopian church, a full Ethiopian church. I was like, oh my goodness, I applied to the wrong church. I said, well, I'm already here. Let me just go inside and explain the situation to them. I go inside. The pastor's there, ready to interview me, and he too is incredibly surprised. He thought I was Ethiopian. I thought he was Indian, and we were both wrong. But across our conversation, God really knit our hearts together. And somehow he said, I think God's calling you to here, to be here, to serve here. I said, okay, sure, if you think so, I will. <laughs> and for the next three and a half years through seminary, I served in a church. And every day I went to work thinking, who am I that I could be here? I don't speak their language. I don't speak, I don't share in their culture. Who am I that I could be used by God in a foreign place? But every single day, God would say, it isn't about who you are, it's whether or not I'm with you. He exchanged my reason of who I am with I'm with you. I'm going to tell you, in those three and a half years, God raised up an incredible generation of Amharic-speaking Ethiopians and Eritreans for his glory. Why? Because it wasn't about who I was or who I wasn't. It's about the fact that Jesus was with us. He's with you. So you would think that Moses, when he gains confidence of the fact that God is assuring him with his presence, he'd be ready to sign up. No, 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 he's got four more cards to play. So he takes his second card and places it down. And here is reason number two. I don't know enough. This is a question of experience. He goes from the question of identity to the question of experience. I am not well-versed. I don't know enough. Verse 13 Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What should I tell them? Moses grew up in a 
Egyptian home under Pharaoh. He was well-versed in Egyptian gods and goddesses. As he thinks about going to the Hebrew people, perhaps he feels insecure about not being trained and sharing in the religious experience of the very people he's being sent to. So he's thinking about all of the questions that he's going to be bombarded with. And he's thinking, God, I don't even know you enough to go to them. The first question was about who am I? The second question is who are you? Not only do I feel confident in who I am, I don't even feel confident in the fact that I know you enough, that I have enough experience with this God that's speaking to me. I don't know enough. I'm not qualified because I haven't experienced you enough. I think this may be the reason that makes a lot of us shy away from sharing our faith, from being a witness of the gospel, for presenting Christ to somebody. It's the fear of not knowing enough. What if they ask me questions to which I don't know the answer of? What if they ask me about evolution or the problem of evil and why bad things may happen to good people? I just don't know enough. I haven't been to seminary. I haven't been trained. I don't know enough scriptures. Maybe I'm not even spiritual enough to know God enough to be used by him. So we step away from the incredible callings of God. Moses offers God this excuse saying, I'm not good enough, this reason. I just don't know enough. Even though God had already revealed himself a few verses prior, who he is and who he represented, he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And still Moses is saying, but that's not enough. I need more. And guess what? God kindly responds. He puts his car down. And notice the response of God. God replied to Moses with a divine name. The first one was the divine presence that assured him. And now God gives Moses a divine name, a personal specific name, and says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to, this, to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every single generation. I am that I am. God lovingly reveals a name to Moses that has yet been recorded in Scripture. Moses, you want to know who I am? I'm going to tell you something no one's ever heard. I am that I am. It's the ultimate statement of God's self-sufficiency, his sovereignty, his power, his permeating presence from one corner of the universe to the next, from one generation to the next. I am always that I am. I am that I am. What God is saying to Moses is, Moses, you don't need to know everything. You just need to know me. You don't have to know every answer. You just need to know who I am. Just know me. I imagine you have a lot of I am not statements. I am not this. I am not that. But here's what I want you to know. For all of our I am nots, God is your I am. For all of our I am nots, God is our I am. I don't know how long the blank is when you fill out the statement, I am not blank. It may be short. It may be long. But if God is what you are not, the matter is settled. God says, I am that I am. And you may say, oh, well, I'm not this. But if God is what you are not, he's assuring you with his name that he's calling you, he's equipping you, he's sending you with purpose for all of your I am nots. God says, I simply am. 
when Paul was a missionary, one of the greatest forms of rhetoric was knowledge and human wisdom. People would come, orators and philosophers, with incredible knowledge. And Paul was well-versed and well-knowledgeable. But when he talks about sharing his faith and sharing the gospel, notice what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2. This is what Paul says about his ministry of pursuing others. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul says, I could have used human wisdom. I could have used the brilliance of my speech, but I laid it all down. All I wanted to know was Christ crucified. All I wanted to preach was Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is absolutely important and critical that we are well-researched and we know our apologetics. I love apologetics more than anybody. But in all of our knowing, the pinnacle of our knowing is Christ crucified. The epicenter of our preaching is the risen Jesus Christ. Paul said, when I came, I came to you in fear, in weakness, and in trembling. If I stood up before you trembling every week, you might be wondering if I'm the right fit for our church. But Paul says, I came to you every time in weakness and fear. Why? Because I don't want your faith to be built on human wisdom or my eloquence. I want your faith to be built on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. By the demonstration of the Spirit's power. See, what saves people isn't our knowledge. It's the working of the Spirit. People will be saved in our community, in your family, in your network, not because of how much you know, but because of how yielded you are to the Spirit's work. How full of you are the Holy Spirit and participating with Him in the demonstration of His work in the world. So the question is not, do I know enough? The question rather is, what's the Spirit doing? How is the Spirit leading me? When it doesn't make sense, how is the Spirit leading me? Paul says, or Moses says, I don't know enough God. God says, you don't need to. I am that I am. We walk by the Spirit of God. We share trusting in his Spirit every single day. Moses has one more card to play, a few more cards to play. And here's card number three. I may fail. So we began with, I'm not good enough, who am I? I don't know enough, who are you? And the third one is the fear of failure, saying, what if they don't believe me and will not obey me, but say the Lord didn't appear to you? He's thinking about the worst case scenarios, all of the failed attempts that he could possibly enter into before he even agrees to go. He was a planner. He was thinking about all of the risk involved and said, most likely they're not going to believe me, God. Even if I go, I don't want to go, but even if I go, they're not going to believe me. So God gives him Three divine signs. God has given him so far his presence, his name, and now his signs. He gives Moses three signs, the assurance of three signs. A staff, his hand, and water. 
God says to Moses, if they don't believe you, throw your staff down on the ground. It'll become a snake and then pick it up again by the tail. It'll become a staff. If they still don't believe you, put your hand in your coat. It'll become diseased as white as snow. And then do it again and it'll be whole. And if they still don't believe you, Moses, grab some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. It'll become blood. These are pretty impressive signs that Moses could perform. Maybe you're thinking, well, if I had at least two of those three signs, everybody would be believe me. But let me tell you, you have a better sign. You have even greater evidence than a staff turning into a serpent or your hand becoming leprous or even water turning into blood. There are two signs that every believer can point to. First is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is our greatest sign. It is our greatest miracle that he bodily, physically rose from the dead. This is the evidence of our faith. It is the assurance of our salvation. He rose from the grave. Maybe today if you're searching, if you are skeptic, if you're wondering about this gospel message we preach, can I simply point you to investigate the resurrection of Jesus? wholeheartedly bring your doubts, bring your questions. He invites them all and he says, come and find out if this is really true. Every single person who has wholeheartedly, genuinely investigated the resurrection of Jesus became a believer. They were transformed by the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. But not only do we have the resurrection of Jesus as our first sign, our second sign is our new life in him. We have both the resurrection of Jesus and our risen life with him. Not only did Jesus rise from the grave, we are experiencing risen life. That's what we just celebrated in baptism. The proof of the gospel message is your story, is your changed life, your transformed life. The greatest evidence, the greatest witness you can bring to those who you are sharing Christ with is the simplicity of your story. Who you were before Christ, how Christ met you, and the change he's brought in your life. That is an undeniable sign that you've been given. It's a sign of your risen life. You have enough signs. Jesus rose from the grave. I've been given a new life. I've been transformed. Your story is your greatest sermon by the power of Christ that's changed you. Moses gives God reason number four. Reason number four is simply this, I am not capable. It's a question of ability. I'm not capable, God. Moses thinks about his greatest weakness that should prevent him from being used. And he says to God, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in this past, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Moses is looking for an ace of spades. He's thinking, what's the one card I can put out before God? That certainly will disqualify me. Well, God wants me to go and speak to Pharaoh. Oh, I got it. God, I can't even talk right. My mouth is sluggish. I can't speak right. So how could I possibly stand before the most powerful person in the world and rescue your people? I am incapable. I don't have the ability needed. So please find somebody else. Well, God, too, had a response for that. And I actually love this response from God. Moses is bringing the reason of I'm not capable and God says, well, I'm going to send you divine help. God says to Moses, who placed a mouth on humans? 
little humor from God. Who gave you a math, Moses? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you. Speak and I will teach you what to say. Moses is complaining about the sluggish nature of his speech and God says, Moses, do you remember that I gave you your mouth and if I gave you your mouth, can't I teach you how to talk? Can't I help you? I'm sending divine help. In your weakness, I will be strong for you. I will equip you when you feel weak. I will fill in the gap where you feel disqualifies you. I will send divine help to you. I wonder what weakness you've pointed to and said, maybe I could be used, God, except for that. What scar, what wound, what brokenness you've pointed to that you felt like that weakness surely disqualifies you. I have my own share of weaknesses. I use reason with God as well. In leading a large church, I often tell God, God, I didn't grow up in a church that was anything more than 150, 200 people max. How could I ever have the leadership ability or the exposure to lead a church like ours or the one that I was in before? I grew up seeing a lot of great pastors and shepherds, but not many forward-thinking leaders and visionaries. So I've often asked God, God, I've got limited exposure. How could I lead in the way you're calling me to? How could I lead a church of people, some who are older than me, of people who didn't grow up in the country I grew up in? of a different culture background, of a different ethnicity, how could I possibly lead in that capacity? We have all of our weaknesses that we reason with God to say, God, pick somebody else, not me, not us, not my family. But I often go to Paul's words, and I think you probably have too, from 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul says to God, after praying multiple times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh, the weakness he felt, and God responds to him, and Paul writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want you to notice the progression in Paul's words here. He is willing to embrace his weakness, but more than that, he is boasting in his weaknesses. I take delight in my weaknesses. He is glad about his weaknesses. And then he says, actually, my weakness is a must. It is only when I'm weak that I actually get to see God strong in me. My deficiency is a benefit now, weakness is a must. Paul is embracing his weakness, thanking God for his weakness, and then saying, God, don't take this weakness from me. See, the world will qualify you based on your strengths, but God qualifies you based on your weakness. He is looking for the gap. He's looking for your pain. He's looking for the scar. And he's actually saying, I'm choosing you, not just simply because of who you are, but because of who you're not. See, God uses us not in spite of our weaknesses, but because of our weaknesses. God uses you not in spite of your weaknesses, but because of your weaknesses. 
There were things that should have disqualified you from ministry and from people and from serving him. God says, that's exactly why I came for you. See, God could have called Moses 40 years ago in Egypt when he was strong and confident and able, but God needed Moses to be broken in Midian. He needed Moses to spend four decades in obscurity in pain so that his self-confidence and ambition could be stripped of him. And there God could find a broken man, a humble man, a man living on the side of the wilderness with nothing but he and God. Your weakness qualifies you. It's because of that God's calling you. Moses has one more card to play. Reason number five. It's simply this. I'm not willing to go. Please pass this opportunity from me. Moses says to God, please, Lord, send somebody else. Perhaps this had been the root of all of his former reasons. I just don't want to go, God. Send somebody else. I don't know what awaits me in Egypt. Maybe all of the emotions of leaving Egypt Killing somebody flooded back into his heart. He was filled with guilt and shame. God, please, some, somebody else. Maybe Moses got used to a mundane, ordinary life. Maybe he got used to his inferiority and his sense of not being worthy. Because at least Midian, it was mundane, but it wasn't dangerous. There was no Pharaoh in Midian. He's saying, God, I would rather settle in this season then move into what you're calling me to. He's willing to let his fear keep him from his destiny. God, please send somebody else. And God offers him his final assurance. And this is what God says. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. I was reading that. I was like, God, give me one less reason until your anger burns against me. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. And I will help you both. I'll help you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. Moses' last reason is an unwillingness to go. And God trumps over that reason with divine community. God says, Moses, you don't have to go alone. I'm sending a brother. I'm sending a support. I'm sending you community. Someone to do this with you. God has given Moses four amazing reasons to go, assurances to go, but it took him until this reason. I think it's fascinating that what convinced Moses to go was knowing that he didn't have to go alone. Before even God started this conversation, God had already sent Aaron to Moses, sent help, sent a support because God already knew Moses couldn't go alone. And in this journey of pursuing our community, you don't have to go alone. I don't have to go alone. We don't have to go alone. You have a group. You have a Bible study group. You have a life group. You have a fellowship group, a serving group. You have one another. Brothers and sisters here in this room and online who will support you, walk with you, encourage you so that you can join God on his pursuit and leave the place of fear and the place of comfort. I say, God, if I can lock arms with people who will speak life, encourage me, move me along in this journey that I'm in, you don't have to go alone in this pursuit of others. So I thought about all these reasons. I think what I want you to mainly take away today is simply this, that in our pursuit of others, 
God's assurance counts us in when our reasons count us out. In our pursuit of others, in the dream God's placed in your heart, in the people God's placed in your heart, God's assurances count us in even when your reasons, when my reasons count us out. I don't know what particular reason today has counted you out. Maybe it's a question of ability or the question of knowledge or experience. Not feeling good enough, not feeling experienced enough, not having enough support system around you. Whatever it might be, God's assurance counts you in when your reason counts you out. Even if parents have counted you out and friends have counted you out and even ministers have counted you out, God's assurance of who he is counts you in even when our reasons count us out. In every single reason that Moses gives to God, Moses was at the, was at the center. It was all about him, wasn't it? I'm not able enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not knowledgeable enough. Moses gave God reasons with him at the center. But in all of God's reply, who was at the center? It was God. I'll help you. I'll be with you. I'll send Aaron. I'll help you. Our reasons start and end with us. But God's reasons start with him and it ends with others. It ends with others. There was a people God wanted to send Moses to. There's a population. There's a group of hurting people in Egypt. And here's what I think God is saying. It's actually not about you. It's not about us. God's got a dream. He's got a family. He's got a life to save. And he calls you. He equips you. He encourages you. He speaks life to you. But at the other end of our obedience is a person. It's an eternity. It's a life, a family, a legacy, a generation to be impacted. So if we can just get us out of the way and we yield to his power, beginning with God, he leads us to others and we'll see the world changed. When we have counted ourselves out, God still counts you in. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you feel like you were on the far side of the wilderness, looking for hope, waiting for something. And there God meets you. You can gladly put all your cards down before him in honesty and transparency because nothing could ever discount you from being used by him. That's grace. He enables, he looks for weakness to strengthen he looks for people who feel like they can't do it to say, that's exactly who I need. All of your reasons may count you out, but God is assuring you that you're still a part of his plan and purpose. Who is he sending you to? What dream has he placed in your heart? What vision have you been running from? One reason after another. Today, God is saying, I'm giving you my presence, my name, my community, my help, and my sign. I've risen from the grave and you are a new person in me. That's enough. That's enough. So Father, we say yes to your call. We say yes to your vision. To your conviction in our heart to pursue people. To pursue lives who have yet to experience and see how good Jesus is. His saving grace. His power. His spirit at work in them. So now as we dismiss, will you send us out? No more reasons to present to you, but simply our surrender. Our yes. In all of our inhibitions and reasons why we feel legitimately we cannot be used, 
God, you are reminding us that you are enough. You are I am. You are good. You are faithful. You are a helper. We have a name to remember you forever. There's a people that you are calling us to. So would you point our hearts to them, infused by the power of your spirit, by the demonstration of your spirit, with signs and wonders, send us, God, the testimony of the risen Savior who has given us new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, church family, for being with us and for joining us online. We encourage you today, if God's moving your heart, will you take your next step? Will you take a moment to pray with somebody? Maybe even this room. Just want to lock arms with somebody and say, I got a burden on my heart. And certainly in the back, after you leave, there's a prayer room of people who are waiting to pray with you. I'm encouraging you today. If you came in today with a prayer, with a prayer need, don't leave without being prayed for. Whatever your next step is, whether it's to come to faith in Christ or be baptized or go into a group, leave today having taken your next step of faith journey. We love you. God bless you. Have a great rest of the day.